0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Institute for Government, which is the UK's leading think tank working to improve the effectiveness of government across the UK. My name is Akash Pound and I'm very pleased to be chairing today's In Conversation event with Douglas Ross MP. And um, first of all, I'd just like to apologise to anyone who tried to tune into this live on uh, Microsoft Teams. Unfortunately, We had some technical problems, uh, which do unfortunately happen. We were just having a conversation last week about the great benefits of uh, doing public events virtually in this brave new world and how it makes it much easier to dial in guests from across the UK, which is absolutely true. Um, The downside is that sometimes things can go wrong as well. So um, apologies for that. And um, I hope some of you are now joining us here Uh, to watch this live. Uh, The video of the event will also be posted on our website and on our YouTube channel um, within the next day or so. So if you're unable to to watch it uh, now, you'll get to see it um, later on at your leisure. So uh, today's event is the first in our Devolution and the Union 2021 election series and that's going to involve a series of conversations with senior pol- political figures uh, from all parties and from across um, the country and they'll be ta- these events will be taking place in the run-up to the elections due to be held on the 6th of May. Next week um, we'll be turning to Wales. We have an event with the uh, leader of Plaid Cymru Uh, Adam Price. But today I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Douglas Ross um, and to have this opportunity to discuss with him the upcoming Scottish Parliament election, the future of devolution and the Union. Um, If you do have any questions, uh, those of you watching live, we are taking those now via uh, Slido. So if you go to www.slido.com Um, and enter the code IFGDEVO, um, then you should be able to submit questions and I'll try to incorporate those during the discussion. Um, And if you wanna join the discussion on Twitter, we'll be live tweeting this from the IFG events Twitter account using the hashtags, again, IFGDEVO and elections 2021. So now to properly introduce our guest, uh, Douglas Ross, has been leader of the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party since August of last year. He's been the MP for Moray in the northeast of Scotland um, since 2017 when he defeated um, the then SNP Westminster, leader at Westminster, Angus Robertson, in one of the big stories of election night. Um, he's also previously served both in the Scottish Parliament and as a councillor Uh, for a decade he's married uh, to Crystal who's a police sergeant Um, they have a one-year-old son together um, and in his free time I'm surprised you have any free time with a big job and a toddler uh, Douglas is a qualified football referee um, officiating games for the Scottish FA, UEFA and So Douglas, welcome to the IFG. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today.
1: Thank you. And could I just, first of all, uh, thank you for the invitation to speak to you and add my apologies. I have to say, Institute for Government did everything over the last few days. We've done trial runs, everything was working perfectly uh, and your tech team were outstanding. And the system up here in Murray, uh, I think, just failed us this afternoon. So I do apologise, but I'm glad we're able to get something online uh, and people will be able to view this at some point.
0: Yeah, I, I appreciate that and uh, yeah, these things happen. Um, so to start with, um, I'd like to start by, uh, by talking about the election. Um, until fairly recently, just a, a few weeks ago, I think it was, there was quite a lot of speculation that the elections might not actually uh, be able to take place. And um, that there was a lot of talk about, about postponement as of course happened um, to the, the local elections in England last May. Um, it now appears more or less uh, certain that we are heading for uh, to heading to the polls on the sixth of May. Um, is that your is that your understanding of the situation, or, or do you think um, there is still a chance that the polls might need to be delayed?
1: Well that's my understanding and certainly throughout this we as Scottish Conservatives have continued to work towards that 6th of May date we've been developing policies since I became leader we've been getting our teams in place in terms of candidates and regional lists rankings are ongoing at the moment. However, this public health narrative about the potential problems with holding a poll um, while we're still in the middle of a global pandemic have been at the forefront of people's minds. And you'll be aware that the Scottish Parliament passed legislation in December last year, which does give more powers to the presiding officer of the Scottish Parliament to potentially extend this Parliament for up to a further six months. He previously had power to do it for a month. So there have been ongoing discussions between the parties, but at the moment it seems that we will go to the polls on the 6th of may it's likely to be higher turnout in terms of those using postal ballots i think the counts will almost certainly be different overnight counting etc and it does bring with it significant challenges and there are people in scotland that question why when they can't leave their home, when they can't see their family, why would we be having a campaign and an election at this time? But clearly um, you know, we also need to ensure that, that governance continues and people have an opportunity uh, to um, you know, use their democratic right to vote. So I think a lot will be done in terms of the campaigning to make it as secure as possible. It will be a very different campaign. I won't be having speeches in town halls or, or going on as many visits. It will be more social media orientated. Uh, but at the moment it looks like we are continuing to head towards six in the
0: election. Okay, yeah, well, that's that's certainly what it seems uh, seems to be the case at the moment. Um, and and you mentioned just then that you were working within your party, of course, to, to decide upon uh, candidate selection and so on. So, so what are your own uh, personal plans? Because you're, of course, uh, a member of the UK Parliament. You're um, presumably um, intending, expecting to be an MSP um, after the 6th of May. Um, where, 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 where will you be standing and, and, and campaigning yourself?
1: So, there's only ever been one seat I've stood in for election. I've stood for Holyrood before and I've stood for Westminster before. And the only constituency I've ever stood for is my home constituency of Murray. And I'm proud and honoured to, to represent Murray in the House of Commons. But when I became leader, eh, Murray already had an excellent local candidate. Tim Eagle eh, is our council group leader eh, in Murray. And I thought it was only right that he continues with his candidacy. So, I am putting myself forward eh, for the Highlands and Islands list. The Murray constituency is in the Highlands and Islands region, 7 eighths of it, the Bucky part is in the northeast, so there is already that nice fit. I previously represented the Highlands and Islands from 2016 to 2017 as a regional MSP, uh, and I'll also continue uh, my role as MP for Murray because it was in December 2019, the people of Murray re-elected me, uh, and I think it's only right that I can continue to represent them in the House of Commons. Of course, this isn't new, dual mandates are allowed. Previously, when the Scottish Parliament was Uh, re-established in 1999. A number of MPs returned to to Edinburgh and served as MP and MSP uh, for the remainder of their term. And of course, most recently, Alex Salmond was both First Minister, MP and MSP. So uh, I've made it clear that I would seek election in the Highlands and Islands list in the Conservatives, unlike the, the Scottish Labour Party, for example, I don't have a guaranteed place at the top of the list. I'm in there with all the other candidates and it'll be up to our members to decide where I'm ranked on that list. And then, of course, up to the electorate in the Highlands and Islands, how many Scottish Conservatives they return in May.
0: Mm hmm. Okay, well, thanks very much for clarifying that. Um, so um, we talked about the the election um, taking place during the pandemic, um, and and yeah, how it might therefore be a different kind of campaign. Um, today is, of course, a very big uh, coronavirus news day, at least as far as England is concerned. Boris Johnson's about to to make his announcement of of, of the roadmap um, out of lockdown. Scotland, of course. Um, will decide upon its own its own roadmap, its own its own path back to normality. Um, something I think a lot of people have realised and learnt during the past year is the the, the extent to which um, important powers over public health and so on are, are devolved. And, and this is of course a largely devolved area. So, what has been your impression of how the Scottish government has managed the pandemic? so far? And what would you like to see them do now, now that hopefully we are on that, on that road back to uh, reopening the economy and society? Well,
1: two parts of that question. First of all, you know, I don't believe there has been a huge difference in the response to coronavirus uh, in Scotland compared to other parts of the United Kingdom. And I think if you have an objective look, it would be very difficult to see a real uh, credible um, difference between um, you know all four parts of the United Kingdom. Yes, some dates were slightly different. And for example, in the first lockdown, we had um, construction. It stopped in Scotland and it continued in England. But overall, roughly, the approach has been similar. And indeed, the First Minister made that point in her briefing today that she expects the plans coming out of the second lockdown to be roughly similar in England as they are in Scotland. But what I'm looking for, uh, and I understand we need to look at the evidence and look at the uh, infection rates, uh, the number of people in hospital, the number of people in intensive care, the number of people vaccinated. Uh, But that last point is a huge difference to where we were in the summer of last year when we came out of the first lockdown. We have the vaccine now. One in four people across the United Kingdom are now protected with the first dose and we're starting with the second doses. And I think that vaccine gives us all the opportunity to be more hopeful as we come out this time. So I fully understand and accept we can't have specific dates to say on X day in X month, this will be allowed to happen, but we should be able to give individuals and businesses a a route map, a schedule, if you like, as to they can see these targets being met and what that will mean for restrictions being eased either for themselves or for their businesses or sector. And I think it's important to give that hope to show this is where we can get to if we continue to meet these uh, targets along
0: the way. Okay. yeah. I mean, as you say, there haven't been huge differences uh, between the approach taken um, in the different parts of the UK. Um, There have been some, though. I mean, even now, for instance, um, there are different rules about um, the hotel quarantine policy. So which people from from other countries having to to quarantine in in hotels, those are uh, rules that apply to people from all across the world. In Scotland only to a certain number of countries for people coming to England there are differences about travel corridors and so on last year um, I mean what's what do you think that those kind of differences reflect do they reflect legitimate different decisions taken by ministers in Edinburgh and Westminster or are those the kind of differences that have emerged almost by accident, and, and the kind of thing that ideally we would avoid? Well, of
1: course, the different governments are being advised by different people, and overall, our four chief medical officers uh, clearly have a, a weekly or, or twice weekly call, so they are largely on message, but there will be some different uh, advice given to Nicola Sturgeon from that given to to Boris Johnson, just given the nature of of this pandemic. We've seen, you know, two medical experts can look at something and and come to different conclusions, and that's uh, understandable. And when you focus on, on those differences, particularly the ones with the quarantine in hotels, I mean, we are speaking about an extremely small number Mm-hmm. who come into Scotland from other parts of the United Kingdom out with the red list countries. So yes it sounds like a big difference in policy but actually in practice you are speaking about very minute numbers of, of individuals affected by it.
0: Okay yeah indeed the numbers the numbers are, are small. Okay thanks. So I think we may come back to the question of cooperation between the UK and Scottish governments more, more generally and and, and, and how those systems for joint working might might be reformed. Um, before we do that, though, I do want to talk a little bit more about the um, election itself. Um, so in some of the public statements you've made, and at least the, the reporting around them since last, since you became leader last summer, um, it seems that you've tried to make the, make the point clear to some extent that you are leading the party in Scotland. Boris Johnson is the leader of the UK Conservative Party, but you are ultimately responsible for the election strategy and, and, and so on. Um, I mean, certainly when you look at the opinion polls with no disrespect to the prime minister, I think it, it suggests that he's not regarded as, as an electoral asset in, in the, the election coming up in, in Scotland. Um, certainly his, his performance is rated more poorly, significantly so, than, than Nicola Sturgeon um, in terms of handling the pandemic. So I just wondered, in terms of your manifesto development and, and your campaign strategy, um, to what extent will you be trying to visibly distance yourself, shall we say, from, from the Conservatives at Westminster?
1: Well, it's been the case for some time. You know, when Ruth Davidson was leader of the party, we took a different approach on a number of different policies. Indeed, in the 2017 election, when I was elected and the 2019 election, we had a separate policy from our colleagues south of the border who were both you know both north and south we were both uh, elected to the house of commons and as part of of the uk government but we had separate policies here uh, in scotland and that's the nature of devolution many of the things that the prime minister is championing are devolved to Holyrood and are either already underway or are policies that that we can also uh, look at or adapt Uh, and i think it's it's right you know people understand uh, that we are a separate party here in scotland and there will be times where we have separate policies unique policies to scotland and, you know, I've been upfront and honest, you know, when I agree with the Prime Minister, you know, I'll agree with them, I'll vote with them, but I disagree with them, I won't. And what I think people expect is there are two governments to work together, someone who will stand up for Scotland's voice to be heard both here and in Scotland and across the United Kingdom but challenge the UK government if we feel they could do better or if they've got something wrong and that's what that's always been the way I've approached politics in my 10 years as a councillor I would quite often uh, you know go out on a wing if I thought it was the right thing to do in the Scottish Parliament and at Westminster I do the same and that's the type of leadership I take to the Scottish Conservatives.
0: And are you tempted at all by by the idea which I know has been discussed um, at I think at the time of previous uh, Scottish Conservative Leadership election contests, that the Scottish party should become an actually autonomous party um, affiliated to the UK Conservatives but organisationally separate. Like for example the, the CSU, the Christian Social Union party is in Germany or in Canada the Quebec Conservative Party and the Quebec Liberal Party are legally speaking totally separate parties just with a a partnership or a relationship of course of cooperation with with their sister parties in the rest of of the country. Is that a model you have or would consider? Uh, well
1: I think that your your final point there is would consider that the party have considered that as you said in the 2011 uh, mm-hmm. leadership election there was a candidate who uh, stood on a platform to do exactly that, and the membership decided to vote for someone else. And since then, you know, we've seen the fortunes of our party change here in Scotland, while still being part of the whole UK party, but a distinct individual part of the UK party. So what I want to see is not focusing on on the branding of the, the Scottish party, uh, or uh, you know, looking to to become a wholly separate entity, but looking to continue to develop our unique policies here in Scotland and taking that message to the people of Scotland, rather than going back over something that was decided by the membership back in 2011
0: yeah indeed that's that's when it that's when it um, was put to the party members I, I recall that um, okay well as you say I mean since then um, the party has gained in in, in strength um, in Scotland at the last election to Hollywood in 2016 um, your party had the best ever results um, and overtook Labour to become the second party at Hollywood for the first time and uh, 31 out of 120 seats, 129 seats were won by the Scottish Conservatives. Um, so given that achievement five years ago, what are your what are your ambitions for this May? What would be a good result for you? I mean does it all really just come down to can you prevent the SNP from winning, an overall majority, which, as we know, is going to really um, put the 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 independence question at the top of the agenda again.
1: Well, first of all, I don't put a limit on my ambitions for the party uh, in me, uh, and this is the answer I'll give a number of journalists who I know it uh, will be asking for this over the next few months. But I think it would be wrong before the campaign started. A single vote has been cast that I'm saying uh, this is where I think we'll end up. What I would point to though is our current place in the opinion polls and our level of support in the opinion polls is currently higher than where we were at this stage in 2016 ahead of the election which delivered the best ever Scottish Conservative result to Holyrood. That same election, where the SNP are polling roughly the same as where they were in 2016 ahead of that election, saw the SNP lose their majority. They went into the 2016 election roughly in the same place right now, with the opinion polls and ended up losing their majority. So it's trying to get that message across. This is not inevitable. It's not inevitable that Nicola Sturgeon will get a majority in this election. And certainly we've shown, not just in the last Holyrood election, but in council elections in elections to Westminster, we are the strongest party across Scotland Scotland, to credibly challenge the SNP at all levels. And it's quite clear we continue to be that strong alternative to the SNP.
0: Okay, well sure, I mean nothing's nothing is inevitable, that's absolutely correct. The Scottish Parliament has a, has a proportional electoral system that was expected to make it virtually impossible <laughs> for any party to win a majority, the SNP showed that wasn't actually true. Um, but let's say then that um, the SNP do retain their position as the largest party, that seems very very likely indeed, but maybe do fall short of a majority what's your strategy in 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 that scenario i mean in 2007 when the snp first came to power alex salmon led a minority administration and did deals with various other parties including the conservatives actually to get budgets through and so on um could you imagine working with or you know almost supporting to some extent uh nicola sturgeon in that way obviously you know you wouldn't you wouldn't support their agenda on the constitution but are there other areas where you could imagine finding common ground if we're in that scenario
1: no uh, i mean we saw in uh, 2007 again the numbers were very different the smp had 47 uh, msps i think it was in labor then as the opposition party had 46 so i mean the balance was very tight even between the first place party and the second place party at that stage But it also meant in uh, 2007 that they had to uh, hold off on their plans for a a divisive independence referendum at that stage. They knew they had to focus on governing uh, Scotland rather than going full throttle uh, with another independence referendum. What we've got this time is Nicola Sturgeon and her most senior uh, cabinet colleagues, Mike Russell as the Constitution Minister, Party colleagues such as Ian Blackford, the SNP leader at Westminster, all suggesting we could have another referendum uh, as early as this year. And I just think, well, we are, you know, we started off this conversation about our uh, easing of the lockdown restrictions. That's going to be with us for weeks and months to come. Yet at the same time, the SNP are speaking about having another independence referendum before the end of the year. I mean, that is just reckless, it's irresponsible, and it's totally the wrong focus for Scotland. So I could never support a party that wants to take us down that reckless referendum route, rather than focusing on our recovery. Where I will work with other parties is is say to Labour, look, you know, if we have an opportunity to work together to stop the SNP, to stop their divisive plans for another independence referendum, will you work with me? And I said that to Richard Leonard, their former leader, and he said no. I then said it to Anna Sarwar and Monica Lennon, the two leadership candidates, and within half an hour, they rejected that. So I think we've got to look at how we do politics differently in Scotland. And that will mean the Labour Party accepting that they should work with the Conservatives to stop the SNP rather than propping up a party which wants to divide and separate our country.
0: Okay, well, we, we hope to have on uh, as part of this series, representatives of both the SNP and Scottish Labour. So um, yes, I, I hope to have the opportunity to, to, to put the uh, converse of those questions to them. Um, let's move on then. Um, I mean, we have started maybe inevitably uh, t- talking a little bit about, about independence and the future of the union and so on. Um, we don't know what's going to happen on 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 may the 6th there's no point speculating about it but i suppose my question my first question to you on that is are there any circumstances in which you would accept the case that it is legitimate for a second referendum to to take place um if you know assuming snp majority maybe a majority of votes and of seats um and and Clear manifesto commitment and 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 such like. I mean, is there any is there any circumstance in which you would say, okay, fair enough, we've got to do this again?
1: No, I don't want that. I didn't want to have the divisive referendum uh, in 2014, but clearly there was a process that allowed that—a legitimate process, a legal process—and we were told at the time and since by Nicholas Sturgeon and other senior members. Of the SNP that that was the gold standard of referendums and they would respect the outcome of that referendum and and they clearly didn't. You know, anyone looking at Scottish politics pre the referendum in 2014 and post can't see much difference in terms of what has happened. We've seen our politics get back to this constitutional wrangling and the focus moving away from things like improving our educational standards. Why is Scotland, once the world leader in education, falling down international rankings? Why are the SNP building hospitals in Scotland that can't take any patients? Why are they focusing on another referendum rather than protecting jobs or supporting our economy? So I don't want that. I am a unionist. I'm proud to be part of the United Kingdom. And I will fight every single day to stop us having another divisive referendum.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I, I absolutely um, understand that that's your, that's your objective, to, to prevent it from happening. Um, I I think at the heart of this debate, there's this question of the maybe somewhat contested principle of national self-determination. I mean, Margaret Thatcher, no less, once wrote that, I quote, as a nation, the Scots have an undoubted right to national self-determination. Should they determine on independence, no English party or politician would stand in their way. although we might regret it, I think she, we wouldn't regret it, I think she went on to say. Um, uh, It seems that the the current Prime Minister takes a a different view. Um, It seems that you you wouldn't agree with that either, or or do do you agree with that basic idea that Scotland ultimately does have the right to self-determination?
1: Well, of course it does. And and we had that opportunity just over six years ago, when we had a full debate, no one could question the campaign, the length of time people had to decide the facts on both sides of the argument, which were disputed at the time and continue to be disputed, but they were fully debated, they were fully discussed, we had a huge franchise, and we had a decisive victory for those who wanted to remain part of the United Kingdom. More than two million Scots voted uh, you know, in polling stations on that day in September 2014 to say they wanted to remain part of the United Kingdom. And what I believe people don't want, and if you look at the opinion polls, and, and you might suggest the opinion polls uh, have It's stated now there have been successive polls in favour of Scottish independence. Those polls also suggest that another independence referendum is extremely low on people's list of priorities right now. They don't want the bitter fighting, the diversion of both um, finance, a way to fight campaigns and resources in terms of civil servants who are currently assisting Scottish government ministers writing up a piece of legislation to take before the Scottish Parliament. Prior to us going into an election, shouldn't we be using all our civil servants and all our resources in government to get on top of this pandemic, to ensure the vaccine rollout continues to go uh, well in Scotland and across the rest of the UK, and we get through this awful virus and this awful uh, pandemic that has affected everyone's lives in Scotland, rather than diverting, you know, crucial resources back to another end
0: mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, you may you may well be right that that this is not an issue. Of, at the top of people's lists of lists of priorities. Um, however, as you also say, I mean, the, the the polls do suggest that support for independence and indeed for the SNP has risen um, over, well, certainly over the past year or, or, or two or three years, in fact. What what do you think actually lies lies under or, or underpins that uh, trend? I mean, does the high level of support for independence, according to the polls? Um, suggest, or is that evidence of a, a legitimate grievance on the part of Scottish voters about how they've been treated over recent years? I mean, most obviously in the context of Brexit.
1: Well, just if you, you look at Brexit, there is no doubt that the Brexit vote was uh, a change for, for many people, and it's something that saw them shift from no to yes. Yeah. Eventually. But that doesn't mean they can't come back across because for many of them, they were really concerned about an no deal Brexit. Indeed, they were told to be really concerned, really worried about an no deal Brexit by Nicola Sturgeon, who then told her SNP MPs to vote for exactly that when they refused to back the Prime Minister's deal in December last year, but we also have to remember that over a million people in Scotland voted for Brexit. So yes, 62% voted to remain, but over a million voted uh, to leave the European Union. And indeed in in my own seat where we are here in Murray right now, it was almost a 50-50 split, 122 votes separated leave and remain. So it's not correct to simply say the whole of Scotland wanted to remain in the European Union. We were divided as many other parts of the UK were on this.
0: Yeah, that is of course true, um, and I I I I I think that's a point that is sometimes overlooked. There wasn't, of course, unanimity, but sixty two thirty eight was a was a fairly decisive victory for for Remain in in Scotland. But no, I I I take your point, and I know which side of that campaign uh, in twenty sixteen you were on. I mean, I suppose for me, what it comes down to when it, to to return to the should should there ever be another question is is it sustainable ultimately for the for the UK government to just say no using the power that it almost certainly has through through parliamentary sovereignty um, if Scots continue to vote for for the SNP Um, I I think I sense that you might agree with the proposition actually that in the end the unionists um, such as yourself and your party colleagues have to engage in and win the battle of ideas over where Scotland's interests um, lie in, in, in the long run. I mean the union I don't think can work in a, in a way that's, that's in, in anyone's interest if the different parts are constantly in, in tension with one another. So um, from your perspective as a, as a unionist, um, i know that it's it, this is this is something you are you are keen to do is to, to have that debate and persuade people that that they should obviously um not um not consider uh the 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 uncertainty of of in independence but how how actually should that battle be be engaged in and from your side um One, there's been a lot of talk about the um, UK government's union strategy. Um, Meanwhile, from recent media reports, there seems to be chaos in in the heart of government. We've seen the departure of two uh, heads of the prime minister's union policy unit uh, within two weeks. Um, So what's going on? I mean, does the government at Westminster have a union strategy? what what does it entail
1: Well, if I can go back to the first part of your question first, and and you are right, you know, I am committed to getting out there and and convincing people who potentially moved from no to yes, or those who were yes last time, but but now aren't sure, because there has been movement both ways, and indeed, you know, posters have have identified that. And I think, you know, it is a legitimate criticism for those of us who supported Scotland remaining part of the United Kingdom back in 2014, that that we thought we'd won that argument because we were told, as again, I said earlier, that it would be once in a generation and then we thought well we've done it now, we can go away and focus on other things, which the nationalists never did they continued their campaign for separation, but also when they were well behind in the polls far further behind than the union currently is, they never gave up, they never said well, you know, the the games are bogey, you know, we're just going to give up they continued to fight for what they believed in and that's why we on the opposite side of the argument have to continue to fight for what we believe in, and I think it's got to be both head and heart. We've got to to look at the financial implications of coming out of the most successful political and economic union uh, the world has seen. And we've also got to look at how, the, how we can show what the UK uh, provides to Scotland and what Scotland provides to the UK. And I think despite what a harrowing episode it has been, the pandemic has shown exactly how we can work together, how Rishi Sunak's furlough scheme has protected jobs Uh, in Scotland, 930,000 jobs through furlough and self-employed income support, in the same way it's protected jobs in Northern Ireland, Wales uh, and England. Look at the vaccine rollout. Where would we be in Scotland right now if we were an independent country back in the EU, out with the United Kingdom's most successful vaccine programme that we've seen one in four uh, people across the country are now protected? These are the things we've got to remind people uh, and make sure they're aware of, the benefits of being part of the United Kingdom. And then just to to come on to queries about does the UK government have a union strategy? Absolutely. You know, I'm involved in political cabinet. I I meet regularly with the prime minister, eh, with secretaries of state. Obviously, Michael Gove takes a key role in his cabinet office role. The prime minister also has the title of eh, minister for the union. Alastair Jack, his Scottish secretary, eh, is closely involved with all that as well. Eh, And look, There's no point trying to hide from the fact that there's been troubles um, and and difficulties with all this, Um, that's been very clear, but it doesn't mean that the underlying aim of this government and of Conservative and Unionist is to protect Scotland's place within the United Kingdom. Uh, and I, I would just end on saying, you know, if we're looking at disunity in government, you don't just have to look to Westminster and the UK government. Look at the mess the SNP, Scottish government are in right now. After 14 years of failure at Hollywood, they have let down so many different areas of public life, whether it be health, Education, our economy, and they are in an internal battle between two factions within the party, Nicola Sturgeon's former mentor and friend Alex Salmon saying one thing and accusing the current First Minister, on the other hand, of lying. So I don't think you need to look too far from where I am here in Scotland for disunity within government either.
0: No, sure. I mean, that's yeah. I think that's probably a conversation for another day. Uh, as, far as I'm concerned, um, I mean, on the on the on the public services uh, performance point and so on. Just a quick advert for the IFG. We are doing some work actually. Colleagues um, of mine are looking at um, the performance of public services in the different parts of the UK, which which we'll be reporting uh, before the elections in May, and and hopefully we'll we'll provide some good. Um, evidence-based analysis to, to inform the um, inform the election and, and, and inform people in, in Scotland and Wales as they go to the polls. Um, so um, to come back to the union strategy, though. So, yeah, OK, I mean, personnel changes and arguments in Number 10 and so on are kind of, um, you know, fleet street gossip to some extent. But do they not also point to the... There's a okay. Put it this way, as I see it, there's clearly agreement within the within the government at Westminster, and within the Conservative Party, about the ultimate objective to to hold the union together. But there seems to be a bit of a tension between those who think the route to that is to kind of engage in 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 sort of battle with 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 the nationalists, um, and you know take a hard line as far as. Um, as far as uh, the passage of legislation that that affects devolved areas like the passage of the U- UK internal markets act um earlier this year and 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 to, to kind of reassert the primacy of Westminster that seems to be one approach on the other hand there seem to be some people maybe more associated with with Michael gove um who, who want to build a stronger relationship of of cooperation with the devolved Administrations, is that fair and, and where do you stand?
1: Well, I think it is fair, but I think it can be both. I don't think there is anything wrong to highlight areas where you think the Scottish government can do better, where they could do more for people in Scotland, while also saying here are areas where our two governments can work together successfully to achieve more for Scotland. So, you know, you mentioned the UK internal market bill there, and I understand the, the SNP were against it, you know, from the very beginning, but this is legislation which one of my own companies here in Murray Baxter's Food Group, said was crucial. Uh, to their business because Scotland does 60% of its trade with the rest of the United Kingdom, more than the rest of the world put together. Uh, I think it was the Fraser of Allender Institute that suggested over half a million Scottish jobs rely on that uh, UK internal market. And therefore, when the SNP vote against that, they're actually voting against Scottish jobs. And I think that's wrong. When the SNP decide to withdraw all their Scottish government officials uh, from the Union Connectivity Review, that's setting out a, a political message, but it's also undermining our efforts to get more investment and more in, jobs uh, into Scotland. When they originally said they were totally against free ports, and I'm pleased they've now you turned on that decision. That was turning their noses up at you know huge investment and again uh, potential jobs to uh, a number of our communities here in Scotland who are crying out for these free ports and like the idea of them. So I do think, you know, we've got to highlight where there are uh, political examples of that, that that the nationalists have taken a nationalist look at something uh, rather than in the best interests of Scotland. Uh, But it is also right that we show where our two governments can work together. Uh, For example, you know, I've been a big supporter of the uh, city uh, and region growth deals. Two governments putting in their their own different sets of funding for individual projects that communities potentially have have worked together eh, to build up a case for, eh, but jointly investing. So here in Murray, we've got a £65 million growth deal, £32.5 million from each government on separate projects, but showing the two governments can work together. And I think that model could also be used, for example, getting our eh, economic agencies to work together, because there's a lot of duplication eh, in Scotland and at a UK level. And a lot of the money that we spend on this, uh, £2.5 billion across the United Kingdom, actually uh, is spent on duplicating similar models north and south of the border. So why not simplify that, show the two governments working together, which then uh, allows people to access money easier and make sure every pound we spend goes in supporting businesses rather than supporting different agencies because one's in Scotland uh, and one's in England
0: okay well one I was I was hoping to come on to this actually but as you've mentioned it I mean what, what one specific initiative that um it seems like it's going to fall into this space where both UK and Scottish governments have a have an interest is the um, shared prosperity fund um so that is of course the the, the, the government's planned uh fund to replace European structural and investment funds that have have supported economic development in in poorer regions across the UK, um, and from which Scotland benefits, I think, disproportionately. So on that issue, we still haven't seen much clarity at all about what it is the UK government intends to to put in place of of structural funds. Um, There was supposed to be a consultation a long time ago uh, we're now, of course, you know, at past the transition period, and so on, and and people are still unsure exactly how this is going to work. And, and it also seems to be the case that the UK government intends to take quite a centralised approach to this, um, rather than working with the Scottish government to decide where the money to be provided through that fund should go. Uh, the reports are that it's intending, in a sense, to bypass. Edinburgh and indeed Cardiff and Belfast and and sort of fund initiatives directly um, as part of a sort of political strategy to demonstrate the value of of UK government spending. Um, And I know that, you know, the devolved governments are are not happy about that. And there's a concern that that might lead to duplication of of programmes and so on. Um, I mean, what's your view of that?
1: but I don't believe it should lead to a duplication of programmes. I understand why the SNP Scottish Government want to get as much money coming to them from the UK government, and they can then say this is their support for these communities. But we have two governments in Scotland, and both governments can invest in communities, and I think it's right that the UK government, which is bringing forward their plans for the Shared Prosperity Fund, can invest directly into communities. That is something that that can clearly be done now, which wasn't possible when we were in the EU, and I, I think it's also important to... Remember, for many people, the drive for for devolution uh, in the referendum in 1997 and and the start of the new Scottish Parliament in 1999 was because they felt very distant from Westminster, from London, from the decisions being taken down there. Now I would say, you know, 21 years on, uh, 22 years on, People feel as remote from Holyrood as they ever did from Westminster. We've seen in the the Highlands and and particularly in Shetland Islands Council, they took votes on this matter because they don't feel as connected to the Scottish government as they previously did or felt they should. So actually, if we're looking to support local projects, maybe we should go to local authorities. So, yes, it is. Uh, you know, going past the Scottish government, but it is still going to local authorities. And at the end of the day, I think people are only interested in getting the projects they think are important for their area. They don't really worry about who signs the chequebook. They just want to get that investment in their area. And that will clearly come through the Shared Prosperity Fund. It's just maybe not through the usual mechanism.
0: Okay, well, that's interesting. I mean, in a a speech you made um, in November, I think it was, um, you you talked about... um, the need for stronger cooperation, revived um, and strengthened systems for intergovernmental relations. I've I've got a quote from you where you you suggest there should be uh, a formal framework for interaction with rules underpinning uh, the flow of information and regular engagement supported by a clear arbitration process to manage dispute and, and disagreement. Um, which is the kind of reform, actually, that we at the Institute for Government have, have suggested at, at various points, that in areas where there is interdependence or overlap between UK government reserved functions and devolved functions, you need better mechanisms for managing the relationship. So, what do you have in mind exactly in that in 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 that regard? There is supposedly. Uh, a report due soon from the review of intergovernmental relations that's been delayed many times. There was a review, a review by your your colleague Lord Dunlop, which was supposed to be published over a year ago. That hasn't seen the light of day either. Um, what can actually? What 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 do you actually think can be done to to strengthen these systems? Well, I think,
1: you know, and again, you know, the Dunlop review obviously was was going to be out, I think, the end of last year. uh, The Prime Minister had said when he was at the Liaison Committee, but understandably, things, uh, you know, have overtaken, events have overtaken, you know, we're still dealing with this global pandemic uh, and our response to it. But there is no doubt, you know, a lot of work has been done to uh, get the uh, governments working together. You yourself gave evidence to the Scottish Fair Select Committee, eh, which I sit on, particularly at the start of the pandemic, in terms of you know, previous mechanisms that worked quite well and um, seemed to break down during the pandemic. And we've got to learn from that and look at what will be the new norm going forward. But I also think at, at the heart of this, there, there's a desire from people across Scotland just to see better relationships. And that goes both ways, undoubtedly. But there is a weariness now of constant fights being picked between the Scottish and UK governments. And actually it's seeming like, you know, people in Scotland don't know who's right and who's wrong. They just think here's another battle between the two governments, when actually they just like to see them working together more, where it's a, a common aim for example, the vaccine rollout, let's just ensure the two governments work together. So the UK government's making sure there's sufficient supplies of the vaccine in Scotland, and then the Scottish government's got to roll that out. I mention again uh, growth deals. there is is an example of every part of Scotland now covered uh, with growth deals for either city or region growth deals where the two governments have worked together. They've said, fine, we'll invest jointly in these projects, you tell us what would make a a difference to your local area, we'll work together, we'll do that. So there is already examples there of how the two governments can work together. Uh, And I think right now, uh, politics would be far better if we could show the people across Scotland that actually there are adults in the room, we're grown-ups, we can work together, we can resolve differences, there should be a mechanism to do that. But surely it shouldn't even get to that stage. We can be, you know, um, professional about this, work together and just actually secure investment and what communities want for the local
0: area. Indeed. Um, Okay, well, there's a couple of questions from uh, the audience that I'm keen to bring in at this point. Um, So first of all, um, there's a question from Jenny W, uh, which is... Will Douglas, so will will you be campaigning to get improvements to the Brexit deal, uh, for instance, in order to improve freedom of movement, as well as recognition of our young people's uh, qualifications or or, um, to ensure greater mobility um, between, presumably, between Scotland and and the single market area? Um, So, yeah, in terms of your... Uh, your your manifesto or or strategy, Um, do you you plan to make the case for a particular kind of reforms to the UK's relationship with the EU or perhaps special uh, arrangements for for Scotland uh, to be more closely connected to the EU?
1: Well, I've already said in terms of immigration, and again, going back to that speech that I gave in November, you know, we can look at areas where uh, there are uh, unique challenges uh, in Scotland and see how those can be better represented in terms of uh, what we can get uh, with the UK government as a result of that. In terms of the deal that was secured on Christmas Eve and then signed into law just before the end of the year, clearly that that was the the deal that was negotiated by both sides. uh, But there will be opportunities going forward to resolve issues. as they arrive, you know, none more so uh, in terms of disputes about getting our produce uh, out to the EU, which is something I've you know, been quite vocal on. You know, I do think we need to, to look again at some of the things that were agreed and some of the bureaucracy that's in there uh, to make that easier. And yes, we can look at how we can continue to attract the best and the brightest uh, into the United Kingdom and into Scotland, uh, and indeed how people across uh, Scotland can have opportunities uh, to further their education uh, and the experiences they get. Uh, and for example, the question might come down to Erasmus and, and why why didn't we continue that? I think the Prime Minister, it was clear he wanted to. He, he made that uh, publicly uh, clear in the House of Commons to an answer. Uh, but you can't simply um, do it regardless of the cost attached by the EU. And it's, it, it's been made um, publicly known now that the, the price for remaining in Erasmus was going to be too much but that didn't stop the UK government from coming up with the Turing scheme that I think could be really good for Scottish uh, young people um, You know, getting opportunities that they could have got through Erasmus now through the Turing scheme. So there are opportunities still there uh, to develop what we do and our relationship with the European Union. And I think um, you know, these are exciting times to see how we can continue uh, to work with our friends uh, in the European Union, but as an independent nation and opportunities around the globe.
0: Okay. And... Uh... Another question which um, has been put to us via Slido, um, and just to anybody watching, uh, you still can contribute questions on Slido um, using the code IFGdevo. So a question from Matt. Um, Is more devolution the answer to independence demands, or do you agree with Luke Graham um, in today's times? Luke Graham, who? Former former Scottish uh, Conservative MP or Conservative MP, uh, do you agree with his statement that more devolution is just giving the bully your lunch money, uh, which is a rather spiky way of putting it?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I'd use that language. Uh, but Luke uh, is a, a passionate uh, defender of the Union, as he was when he was the MP for Oakland South Perthshire. Uh, what I would say is, that, and again, I've made this clear uh, in my speeches, we've had Scotland acts in 1999, 2011, 2016 and they were to answer specific problems and and to uh, improve the devolution settlement, they were never in themselves intended to be the answer to independence. So I don't think simply giving more and more powers uh, to Holyrood is the answer uh, to suddenly stop uh, people considering supporting separating Scotland from the rest of the UK. What I'd far rather see is actually the Scottish government using the powers they've got at the moment. The powers over our health service to to make sure our health service is fully supported during this pandemic and as we come out the other side. The powers that they've got over education, which has seen our young people really struggle. The number of teachers in Scotland fall to its lowest level because of decisions taken by the SNP over their time in government. The support they need to give to local councils because we've seen when the Scottish government gets additional support from the UK government, that doesn't always get passed on to our councils despite them being asked to do far more with less so my answer to that is not more powers let's just get the Scottish government using the powers they've got to better improve the lives of people in Scotland and when you ask for powers, actually use them. You'll know uh, a cash on Social Security. The Scottish government demanded more powers over Social Security because they would do it far better. But in the end, it was too complicated for them to set up the Siemen scheme in Scotland. So they have handed them back to Westminster for a few years while they tried to get things organised. So I think focus on what's there right now.
0: OK, fine. And a follow up to that uh, from someone who is anonymous on the chat. Um, what are your opinions on the Scottish fiscal frameworks? This is the agreement between the the Treasury and the Scottish Government about uh, the funding of the Scottish Government and the fiscal rules that they must uh, that must be obeyed at the at the at the devolved level. Um, and specifically, well, maybe you answered this already, but I'd be interested in your comment. Do you think Scotland should have more uh, more tax powers? Which is, a, which is a different kind of issue to devolution of, you know, welfare or public services or so on. Uh, this would be a, a reform that might strengthen the, the fiscal accountability of the Scottish institutions.
1: So, first of all, um, in terms of the, the first part of your question, there is clearly uh, and has been ongoing uh, discussions uh, about the Scottish fiscal framework. It, it's due, you know, um, at... Uh, relative intervals, you know, to be reviewed and it's constantly being discussed, I know, between Steve Barclay uh, and ministers uh, in Holyrood. And it comes up quite a lot in in Westminster questions uh, as well. But we just have to look at how almost 10 billion pounds of additional support coming to Scotland during this pandemic has helped us fight this health emergency and benefit uh, the businesses who need support here in Scotland. My biggest worry is that money doesn't always get to the front line as quickly as it could. We know from the number of schemes that the Scottish Government have proposed with this UK uh, government funding uh, to support businesses, uh, about half of that still hasn't got into the bank accounts of Scottish businesses. So where is the problem? Where is the blockage uh, in that system in terms of getting support that is available in other parts of the United Kingdom uh, and then just on on tax varying powers obviously there are uh, powers at the moment I you know I naturally don't want to see taxes going up and I'm disappointed that Scotland's still the highest tax part of the United Kingdom um, but we said in our budget submission here uh, in Scotland we we didn't want to see that increase get any greater but we understand in a pandemic it that it's it, you know difficult to, to cut taxes etc right in the middle uh, of this but that's ultimately our aim to see the the tax a cut here in Scotland. And in terms of more powers, you know, I think the, the accountability is there. There is, you know, significant support from the UK government. There are opportunities uh, to vary tax uh, in Scotland, and I'm certainly not proposing uh, any new areas uh, at the moment with that
0: okay great well um i think that is a good place for us to end i know you have a, another engagement uh starting shortly um douglas so first of all i just want to thank you very much for, for for taking the time to join us today it's been a uh, very interesting discussion um and um, as mentioned it will be uh, posted live on our YouTube channel and website soon. Um, And um, we will be, as also mentioned, following up with similar events with members of other parties across the UK, starting with Plaid Cymru leader Adam Price. That event will take place uh, next week, Tuesday the 2nd of March at 4 p.m. So please, do join us then um so on that note um thank you Douglas thank you all for joining us goodbye thank you